Amen. We'll turn with me this morning to James chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, um, we've been working through this letter together. It's a wonderful reminder and call to a faithful Christian life. And so it's, a, it's an easy book to read and understand from an intellectual perspective, but it's an incredibly difficult book to digest and then actually to live out. We're going to be in James chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 13 through 18 this morning together. Before we turn now to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Lord, thank You for reminders even this morning that it's in our weakness that You are strong. And God, that You have ordained the foolish things of the world to bring to nothing the wise. And so, God, we pray now that as we are weak to read and study and know your word, we're unable, God, that in our weakness you would be strong and that you would help us, that you would speak to us through it, God, that you would bring about transformation by its power in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James 3, beginning of verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So it is obvious then that this uh, section, in this section, James is going to turn to a little bit of a different topic. If you were with us last week, we were talking about our speech talking about our language, talking about the difficulty for human beings, for sinners to tame the tongue, uh, how, uh, how, how difficult a thing it is for us to control this mouth and this tongue that God has given us, and also a reminder of the great power that rests in it. And, and so then, then in this section, immediately on the heels of that, he's going to begin to discuss wisdom and who among us is wise and how we can know whether or not we are wise and what the nature of true wisdom is. And it is in this passage compared to false wisdom. So this is a passage that sets up for us uh, an understanding by way of a dichotomy. He's going to compare and contrast two types of wisdom, true wisdom and false wisdom, uh, spiritual wisdom and the wisdom of the world, wisdom and the knowledge of God and wisdom and the knowledge of man. And so that's going to be the structure. We're going to deal with them together. And in each point of the sermon, we're going to consider uh, how that point reflects itself in true wisdom and then what it looks like in false wisdom. So we're going to ask some questions. We're going to ask, where do these wisdoms come from? We're going to ask, what are their characteristics? And then we're going to ask, what is each of their results? Okay, so, so real practical and real simple and real easy. And I think that's the intention of this passage. And though it is a civil passage, it is, not, um, it is not a superficial passage. There are some incredibly nuanced and detailed and deep things to be learned and understood from James's argument here. And what I want you to understand is that this section, though it may seem a bit peculiar in its, the way that it fits into James's argument, it serves as a transition passage. 
It serves as a transition uh, that is entirely appropriate to what he's been talking about because it applies uh, to both what he has said before uh, in the immediate context and what he's going to say after in the immediate context. But it is also a transition because it moves him along in his greater argument that he is making. So that in the most general sense, James has been arguing that a heart of true faith necessarily produces a life of faith and obedience. And remember, he's been giving multiple examples and dealing with multiple realities that you cannot profess to love Jesus and to be in a relationship with him with your mouth, but then have a life that seems to point in a different direction. You can't live habitually a life of disobedience and sin with a lack of faith and joy that those things are mutually exclusive. And so he's been arguing that all one needs to do in order to test the sincerity of their faith is to look at the fruit of their life to look at the obedience in their life to the scriptures, to look at the conduct of their life. We cannot act in ways that are contrary to the gospel. We cannot respond to others, he says, in ways that are contrary to the gospel. We cannot speak with our mouths in ways that are contrary to the gospel. For if our life is characterized by self-serving disobedience to the scriptures, it is evidence of the reality that, as Jesus said, though we honor Christ with our lips, what? Our hearts are far from him. So that there is a, there's a difference in, 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 in many lives between what, what the lip service that is given and the heart and genuine obedience that gives the lip service. And what he says is that the one points to the other, that it vindicates and testifies to the other. So that in the most general sense, this passage is entirely appropriate because he's going to further his argument, not only by the way we respond to trials and the way we respond to others and the way we obey the scriptures and the way that we speak, he's going to say in the wisdom that we have. Because why? Look at, look at the very first verse. Whoever is wise and understanding among you, how, how is that to be determined and testified to? By his good conduct. Let him show in his works and the meekness of his wisdom, right? That he does not boast... Uh, falsely against the truth, so that the sincerity of his faith, the truth of the gospel that he professes to believe in, what? That just like all of these other evidences, that the wisdom that is evident in his conduct is testimony to the truth that he believes, to the truth that he professes to believe with his mouth. So it's, so it's entirely appropriate in the, most gen, in the most general sense of his argument, but it is also entirely appropriate specific to what he's been arguing in the immediate context. Both what's coming before, or what has come before, and what will be coming next. In the beginning of chapter 3, he begins to talk about the tongue and taming the tongue. And he's dealt with that issue. Okay, He's been saying that you cannot talk however you want and use whatever kind of language that you want to use. Uh, because it shows that your heart is really darkened. And, and so then he moves into a discussion that if we are going to be wise, it is going to be evident in our conduct. If we are going to... Uh, it's going to be evident in the way we talk, in all manners of our conduct. This wisdom is going to be evident. And then what happens is, in chapter 4, he's going to move to the next topic of his discussion in the letter. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 26 or 27, where he lays out the, 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 the pattern, the, 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 the things that he's going to talk about, the outline, if you will, of his letter. Look at what he says in verse 26. If anyone thinks his religion, uh, he is religious and he does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, his person's religion is worthless. So that's one thing he was dealing with at the beginning of chapter 3. And then in 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, 
is this, two other things. One, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. So the way we respond to other people in the community and in the culture and in the church. And then thirdly, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So personal piety and holiness. Well, in chapter 4, he's already talked about our responding to others. In, chap- in chapters 1 and 2, then in chapter 3, he has already talked about the taming of the tongue, bridling of the tongue, and the evidence that that shows of the faith that we have. And then in chapter 4, he's going to move to say, uh, you, you must be different and separate from the world. That, that you cannot be worldly and, and be a believer in Jesus Christ. You cannot live a, a lifestyle of habitual worldliness, that you must have a certain, a certain evidence of personal piety and holiness and uprightness in your life and in your conduct in order to give evidence of the profession of faith that you make in Jesus Christ. And so in order to get from speech to here, the question is going to be in chapter 4, he's going to deal with our conduct and our holiness in all of chapter 4. But the question is going to be, how do we know how to act? We know how to act from what? Spiritual wisdom. So do you see that in order to get there, he's going to build up the foundation of our obedience and our conduct comes from a right and a spiritual understanding of the scriptures. We must have a spiritual wisdom and not an earthly wisdom if we are ever going to be successful in a life of spiritual obedience that testifies to the faith that we claim to have in Jesus. So I don't know if I did a good job of helping you to see how those things connect together. But this passage then about wisdom serves as a transition from his discussion about how we can tame our tongues and the evidence that that gives of our heart to moving into a discussion of worldliness versus holiness. And that those two issues in our personal conduct, they give a certain testimony about our life as well. And so he begins... By asking the question, it's kind of interesting how he puts his language in his argument. He says, whoever among you is wise and understanding. Um, you know, one, one preacher said, you know, it's almost as if James is saying, okay, we're fixing to gather a group together of all of you uh, wise and understanding, right? What was he saying at the beginning of chapter 3? All, not many of you who want to be teachers should be teachers, Right, so he's furthering his argument about teachers, I think, to some degree here. All of you who think you're wise and understanding, we're fixing to get all of you together over here under this tree. But then he says, how do you know if you should be over here in that group? Look at your conduct. Right? He's giving them this test. Whoever thinks he is wise, whoever thinks that he is understanding, notice what he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of his wisdom. Okay? So he is... Telling those who think themselves qualified in the immediate context, I think about teaching, those who have the right degrees, those who have all the knowledge in the world, those who have the right language, if you will, the right speech from the beginning of chapter 3, who maybe they, 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 feel, they feel like they should be teaching, they have all the knowledge that they need for teaching, they think themselves wise because of the degree or because of the knowledge that they have. Whoever among you thinks that you are understanding, what he is telling them is you will not be able to tell whether or not you are truly wise or truly understanding until you look at the conduct of your life, until you look at your lifestyle. And in other words, the issue here for him in the context of who should be teaching, who should not be, who is wise and possesses wisdom and who does not, on the one hand, it's not a matter of education. For like faith, wisdom is seen and not heard. It is, it is something that our life gives evidence to that we are truly wise, not something that we can give a correct or proper answer for. But on the other hand, for those who would seek to be teachers, the issue is not one of professional competence. 
Remember we, we said last week was we talked about the importance of language and the power of language and those that would seek to be teachers using language and the, the, the benefit and the, the good that they can do and the harm and the detriment that they can cause, that we must be very careful. So the issue is not whether or not you are smart enough. The issue is not whether or not you're trained enough. The issue is not whether or not you're wise enough according to the standards of the world. It's not the issue of professional competence but of practical godliness. You want to know how wise you are and how apt to teach? Look at your life. right? Look at your lifestyle. Look at your conduct. Look at your willingness and desire to obey the Scriptures. When you look at the Scriptures' qualifications for those in leadership in the church, namely pastors, elders, and teachers, none of it has to do with training. It all has to do with their lifestyle. How they lead their life. How they orchestrate their family. Their personal conduct and personal holiness. So do you see that what he is saying is, as he's moving into a discussion in chapter 4 about holiness over against worldliness, is that if you think you're wise, those among you that think you're understanding, that think you're qualified to teach, that think you know something of the Bible, if you want to know how much you know in the depth of your wisdom and understanding and knowledge, you can absolutely tell by the life that you live and the conduct of your life. That's what he's saying. Well, no, if you're qualified to teach, look at your life. That's how elders are qualified. It's how deacons are qualified. It's how pastors are ultimately qualified. And so then he's going to make these comparisons. He's going to say, whoever's wise among you, look at your conduct. And then he's going to tell them, if this is what your life is characterized by, you have no wisdom. I don't care how many degrees you have, you are not educated, at least in the things of the Spirit. And then he's going to say, and this is what true wisdom looks like. And this is how the two are um, contrasting with one another. So, so first of all, as we consider both godly wisdom or the wisdom of the heavens, as he talks about in the language here, and the wisdom of the world, it's going to get us into the first, where do they come from? Well, I don't think that I have to work too hard to help you understand. What does he say? Look at verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is, do not uh, bear false witness against the profession of truth that you make to believe in Jesus and the gospel. Then he says, this is not the wisdom, what? That comes down from above. So whatever it is that he just characterized, it is characteristics from some wisdom that comes from somewhere other than the heavens. What is this language about the heavens, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament? When people talk about things that come from heaven, what do they mean? They mean things that come from God. Because who's in heaven? God is in heaven, right? It's not literally up. I, mean, I guess it may be. I don't, I mean, it may be. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is that it's, it's otherworldly. And, and that there is this heaven, this otherworldly place that is the abode of the almighty God, the all-wise, all-knowing, full of truth and wisdom and understanding. The source of all of these things, he, he abides in the heavens. And, and whatever these characteristics that we're going to get to in just a moment that he was just speaking about, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes from that place. This is not the wisdom that comes from God himself. This is wisdom, what, that comes from, look, but it is earthly. It is earthly. Do you see that true wisdom, whatever we mean by that, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, true wisdom is only wisdom that comes down from heaven. Wisdom whose source and nature is God himself. 
And that all other wisdom that comes from the world, that comes from the earth, that sources the created things and the sinful deterioration of that creation that has taken place, that all of that wisdom is false wisdom. It is earthly wisdom. If you go back to James chapter 1 again, this should not be a surprise. Look at James chapter 1 verse 5. He's already already taken up the issue of wisdom and where it comes from, at least in passing Right off, right out of the gate, right off the bat, what does he say? James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Why? Because God is the giver of true wisdom. God is the source of true wisdom. God is the one who disseminates true wisdom and bestows it upon those whom he pleases. So if you're going to have true wisdom, it's going to have to be wisdom that comes from God and not from the world. Well, let's get a little bit clearer uh, about what this wisdom is. You know, we live in a culture that's infatuated with education. I mean, I don't have to tell you that. Um, we could sit around, the people in this room sit around, debate uh, the different types of education and college settings and public school or private school or home school and government-run school and government out of school. And at the end of the day, we are a people that live in a culture and to some degree are the products of the culture that is infatuated with education. But in a culture, and, and, and right, listen, rightfully so, we don't want dumb children. I mean, Practically, pragmatically, we need educated, uh, knowledgeable children, both in spiritual things and in practical things. They have to have a trade. And the Bible's not going to teach them how to be a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse or a woodworker or construction, whatever it is that they're going to do. The Bible's not going to teach them how to do that. It's not su- sufficient for those things. Right? So, so practically, it's not a bad thing necessarily, but in a culture that's inundated with education and infatuated with its benefit, we must be careful to distinguish between education, or that is, intellectual knowledge and true wisdom. For there is a crucial difference. We're going to go to three different places. You can turn or you can listen in Romans chapter 1. Paul has some important things to say about wisdom, the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of God in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, listen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God's wrath is against men because of their conduct. Okay, so notice here the connection that Paul makes between conduct and God's wrath on account of men's conduct and knowledge or wisdom. Who by their unrighteousness suppress what? The truth. So do you see they suppress the knowledge, the wisdom of God, and the result of their suppression of true wisdom is a life of godlessness, unrighteousness, and disobedience. And so the result is God's wrath is poured out against them. For what can be known about God, so now he's going to enter into a discussion completely about knowledge and wisdom. For what can be known about God has been made plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, that is, in the created order, so that they are without excuse. O man, wherever you are, you are without excuse. You you can look at babies being born and stare at the stars in the sky and the, the wonderful general graces evident to us in all of creation, and you are responsible for knowing that there is a God and what you've done with him. 
This knowledge that he gives, this wisdom. What's the problem? It's not that we don't know. It's that we have a knowledge that is not of God. And that we have suppressed the truth and the wisdom that he sought to give. It's a suppression of those things, not a lack of having them. For although they knew God, that is, in a worldly, intellectual, educational, academic sense, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then here it is. Claiming to be wise, and and listen, friends, those to whom he was speaking were wise in the eyes of the world. Educated. They claimed to be wise, and the, the culture around them supported their claim. But, but what? They became fools. Do you see? The, there's a huge difference between education and knowledge and worldly uh, understanding and the truth of God and the wisdom of God. They exchanged, it says, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping. What? They became idolaters and they served themselves. Self-serving disobedience, right? Wickedness, godlessness, unrighteousness is the result of suppressing the truth and abiding by the wisdom of the world. First Corinthians chapter 1 also. Turn over just a few pages if you're turning with me or listen carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are dying. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice he's talking about knowledge. The the knowledge and the truth of the gospel. That to some it is life and breath, and to others it is death upon death. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Isn't that the same question James is asking here in James chapter 3? Where is the scribe? Notice this is wisdom according to the standards of the world. The educated. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So do you see that the wisdom of the world and the wisdom that God is speaking about, true wisdom that leads to spiritual fruit, they are different things. And in a culture, in a world, in a community, to some degree, rightly so, that's infatuated with education and knowledge, we must make a careful distinction. For since, he says in 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe, that is, who believe the wisdom he offers. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, that is, the wisdom of the world. But we preach, look, a different wisdom, Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Okay, do you see that? This this difference. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then finally, one that you will know very well that gives us a clear, uh, unclouded answer to what is this wisdom about which James and Paul are speaking Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning and let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of this knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you see 
so that no matter what degrees you possess, no matter how enlightened you have become, no matter how educated and how smart or lack thereof, if you reject the knowledge of God, then you become a fool. Where do these wisdoms come from? Well, true wisdom comes from God. And worldly wisdom, false wisdom, comes from the earth and from the men that fill it. Friends, one pastor said, uh, how did he put it? He said, ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. He went on to talk about advertising. It's the reason that people package ideas in a way that, that we can accept and that we can buy. Because when we buy into an idea, things happen. Conduct follows. And there are consequences for ideas. If education and enlightenment could solve the problems of the world, friends, then the problems of the world would be be solved. We are more educated about STDs, about teen pregnancy, about obesity, about war, about human rights and equality. There is more education going on in our world today, in our own communities, in our own settings than has ever been available to people. We are more educated and more knowledgeable about these things than we have ever been. Yet they continue. Friends, and they will continue. You know why? Because the wisdom that brings these things to an end is not the education of the world. It is a knowledge of God. Friends, if we believe, it's not because we lack education, it's because we lack wisdom. If we believe that ideas have consequences, think about this. A knowledge of God in our hearts, an understanding of his holiness, knowing that we were made in his image, and that to him we will one day give an account. Friends, do you know that that knowledge and that idea changes things for you? Doesn't it? That there is a God, and he is holy, and you are not. You are made in his image to bring about his glory and to serve his purposes. And one day, you will stand in his majestic presence. You will give an account to how you stewarded those blessings. Do you see, if we had that wisdom, and that knowledge, and that idea seated in our hearts, that the that the problems in the culture would be obliterated because we would live lives characterized by obedience to the scriptures. That when we stood before him, we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We would seek to be workers approved in his service. Friends, it's not because we lack education and because we're dumb. It's because we lack the wisdom of God that comes only from him. So they come from different places, but friends, they also have different characteristics. Back to James chapter 3. What are the characteristics of these two realities, of these two different types of wisdom? Well, namely, one, that is the wisdom that comes from heaven is characterized by, first, meekness. Look, by his good conduct, let him show in his his works in the meekness of his wisdom. Okay, so that the characteristic of the wisdom of God is evidence in meekness, and that is opposed or uh, juxtaposed over against what we see of the wisdom of the world in verse 14. But, okay, if you have the wisdom of the world, you will have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. 
do you see the difference? So that the wisdom of the world is characterized fundamentally by a self-serving ambition and bitter jealousy, right? So that the things we do are the things that serve us best, the things that get us what we want, where, where we are driven by jealous and selfish ambition, rather than being driven by the wisdom of God, by being driven and characterized by meekness and humility, where we're not serving ourselves, we're serving another. Where we don't live for ourselves, we live for another. Where we are not getting ahead, we're letting God bless and provide. Do, do you see that those are the two main differences that we see there? So that in verse 16, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, they exist. And where they exist, look at what it says in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, the two key characteristics where they are, look at these further, uh, ex- uh, look at these further characteristics. There will be disorder and every vile or evil practice. And notice there that there is a progression. Notice that there is a progression. The wisdom that comes down from heaven is not like this. For the wisdom of the world is earthly, and then it just goes from bad to worse. Then it's unspiritual, and then ultimately it's demonic. Do you see these characteristics in this progression? That, that the selfish ambition that characterizes the, the self-serving desire for knowledge in the world's eyes and the wisdom of the world, it will bring about disorder. It will bring about evil practice and vileness and unrighteousness. And it will go from bad to worse, ultimately ending in demonic things and conduct. But look at verse 17. But... The wisdom from above, from the heavens, see that language there, that is characterized by meekness. Look, it is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Notice the first thing, that is characterized by purity. Why? Knowledge of God and our accountability to him produces a desire for holiness, doesn't it? But we don't want to stand before him stained, giving, giving account of a long list of unrepented transgressions. So that if we possess this wisdom that Proverbs speaks of, that Paul speaks of, that James speaks of, this wisdom from the heavens, it will lead to purity. That's what he says there. It is pure wisdom because it comes from a pure source and because it leads to purity in the lives of those that have it. The second thing, it leads to peace, then peaceable. Friends, this is, this is one of the greatest results of this knowledge of God, what brings about peace with God in our hearts through the gospel. A true knowledge of God and an understanding of what he's done for us in Christ. That yes, he is holy and yes, we are separated from him, but he has bridged that gap by the blood and the cross of Jesus so that we can come one and come all. We can bring our problems and bring our difficulties and bring our sins and they can be washed as white as snow so that we don't have to give an account. So that there will be no condemnation for those of us who stand in Christ Jesus on that day. See, it brings peace with God, friends, but it also, this knowledge of God, it brings peace with others. Why? Because unlike the wisdom of the world that tells us that we have to be better that we have to make something of ourselves even if, even if it is at another's expense. That we don't, you know, that we have to take revenge on those who have wronged us 
so terribly that, that we have to look out for us. Do you see that the wisdom of God is totally different? God says, I've made you somebody in Christ. You don't have to try every day to be something. You're somebody in me. He says, revenge is mine. You don't have to try to take vengeance on those that have wronged you. You can be at peace with me and you can be at peace with all men. You see that the wisdom of God and not of the world, it brings peace. And then the rest of the list, that it's gentle. It's, it's easy to deal with. It. It, it's characterized by willingness to listen and reason, open to reason. It's not puffed up with pride, full of mercy. Friends, you know why the wisdom of God brings, brings an attitude of mercy? Because if we know how holy God is, if we know how separated from God we are, then the one thing we know for certain is how merciful he's been to us. Friends, then who are we to extend anything but mercy to the sinners around us? To be gracious and patient and kind. So that it's characterized by a life full of mercy and good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Do you see how these, do you see how these things flow from the knowledge of who God is? The, the knowledge of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of him, wisdom increases in our lives. And the harvest of righteousness. So then what is the result? What is the result of each of these uh, realities? Well, the wisdom of the world that is characterized by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, disorder and every vile and evil action, it ultimately results improving our profession to be false. Go back up to verse 14. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast. Why? Because if you boast, that is, in the truth of the salvation of Jesus, then you will be false to the truth. Do you see that you'll be professing something that you do not really believe and know? You'd be professing a truth and living it, living a falsehood. You'll be proving yourself to be a hypocrite. Friends, ultimately, the wisdom of the world and the life and the conduct that results, it points to the reality, which is the seed of the problem, that our hearts are darkened and unredeemed and that we remain separated from God and unwise to who he is and all other spiritual realities. What is the wisdom of God that he speaks of? This knowledge of him and his character and his holiness the wisdom of God that comes down from heaven. It is characterized by meekness and holiness, mercy and a fruitful life. It ultimately re results in confidence because it proves our profession to be true. What does he say? That there is a harvest, what? Of righteousness. Friends, I've, I've said this many, many, many times. Why did Jesus die? It's not to make you more well-behaved. It's, it's, it's not behavior modification. It's not so that you could be happy and healthy and wise in the world's eyes. It's not so that you could have a good job, a good car, and no problems. It's not so that your children wouldn't be sick or your spouse wouldn't be sick or your parents wouldn't die. Jesus did not die for any of those things. Jesus came and God killed, slaughtered his only son for one reason, that sinners would be given righteousness. That we would be transformed from something that we aren't into something that Jesus is. That he took on us, he took on our sin, and then he bestows on us 
righteousness. And what he says is that for those whose conduct show their true abiding knowledge of God, the wisdom that is from heaven, what? There is a harvest of righteousness. Friends, one day that we will harvest the righteousness. That the righteousness of Christ, that, it, that is ours in part now, friends, one day will be harvested in completion, in full. When we will stand before God, not as, not as terrible sinners, but as terrible sinners who have been washed by the blood of Christ and made righteous. Friends, let us pray together as Christians that God would give us wisdom. Let us pray that God would give us understanding and that we would not be so consumed with the uh, desire for knowledge and education in the world that we forget to make the distinction between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. Friends, if any of us lacks wisdom, and, and we all do, James 1.5, let us ask of God who gives generously to his people. For if we'll ask, he will give. And friends, that, then, our lives will, then our lives will reflect. They will reflect a true and abiding understanding of how gracious and merciful God has been, how holy he is, and how sinful we are and in need of him we stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you. <clears throat> I thank you that even as I have stood and tried to speak your word plainly, uh, God, that, that no matter how eloquent or not I'm able to teach, God, that what we need and what you promise is to bestow true wisdom from, from heaven upon us. And so, God, I pray that you would open open our eyes and that you would open our hearts. God, that you would give light and understanding where there is darkness and confusion. That you would give clarity and distinction. And that we would understand that while it's good to pursue education and knowledge, that it is not the ultimate end of our life. That the fear of you is the beginning of true wisdom. God, fill us with a knowledge of your holiness Fill us with a knowledge of your grace and your mercy. Fill us with the knowledge of Christ and the peace that he brings. Peace with you and peace with men. God, and then use that knowledge, that wisdom, to transform our lives. God, that we would live in a way that point people to Jesus. And that we would live in a way that prove our professions to be true. God, give us the true wisdom that only comes from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.